Welcome to the Development Policy Centre podcast. My name is Jonathan Pryke. In this episode, we bring you a recording from a recent public lecture by Mario Pizzini from the OECD Development Centre. Pizzini's lecture was titled Perspectives in Global Development, Industrial Policies in a Changing World, and was based on the 2013 OECD Development Centre report. Good afternoon. It's a pleasure to be with you. I want to thank the Director of the Development Policy Center for this opportunity to share with you some ideas. And despite my Italian nature that uh, pushed me to speak for a very long time, I will try to contain to have also some question and reaction. But in order to start, uh, let me just introduce, not that much myself, but the institution that I am here representing, which is the Development Center of the OECD that I have the honor to direct. Um, the Development Center, no, let me start in the other way. The OECD was created in 61. It's not a long story, don't worry. Um, <laughs> and it was decided at that time to limit uh, the country member of the OECD to those that were the most developed countries. And sometimes there were people that were complaining, saying that the D in the name that should stand for development, in reality was standing for donors. And among others, there was, at that time, a policymaker called John Fitzgerald Kennedy that suggested to complement the OECD with another structure called the Development Center, where, in his idea, uh, developed and developing countries should sit together, both with the same voice, discussing and sharing experience in policymaking. That's why, one year later, the OECD the center was created. The center now is 51 years old, much older than I am, uh, and is working with the perspective of creating policy dialogue and the sharing of experiences in policy making about development between developed and developing countries. That's very important because it explains why we are doing this analysis and what is our specific perspective when it comes to development that very often is narrowly defined in developed countries as the policy of aid. In other terms, development is what I do for the others. Instead of being development, what are the conditions to develop that concerns developed and developing countries? <coughs> but as it was said, in order to comply with our mandate, every year we realize an analysis, and in particular we started three, three years ago to produce this perspective on global development. And uh, we produced this report with researchers, my collaborator, but also with the member of the center that at present are 24 OECD countries that include Germany, France, Italy, United Kingdom, and others, and, 20, and 17, now 18 countries that are not member of the OECD but are full member of the center. And among others, the members are Indonesia, India, South Africa, Brazil, but also Argentina, to quote another G20 country, <laughs> Peru, Colombia, Costa Rica, Dominican Republic, Morocco, Egypt, Senegal, Thailand, Vietnam. Now, with all these countries where we speak in public, we have been told that we have to start in a different way according with the country in which we are. So, for example, if we are in the United States, we have to start with a joke. 
But if we are in Japan, we have been told that we have to start apologizing. <laughs> now, as we are in Australia, I decided to apologize for my joke. <laughs> Because I don't have one, I, or maybe I will say one just at the end. What I will do now is to concentrate on three points. And if I am capable to use this tool, okay. In particular, I will address the starting point of our work and analysis on trends that we have called three years ago shifting wealth. I will therefore uh, pass through the impacts that the shifting wealth has on the global economy, and in particular, as a third point, ask how much this shifting wealth is sustainable and what are the emerging policy responses to provide yes as an answer. Let me start first with the starting point, which is shifting wealth. Three years ago, a colleague of mine, German of origin, came in my office, knocked at the door, and he says, Mario, we applied a typology suggested by Wolfstone, that at that time was the boss of the World Bank, a typology where there were four types of countries accordingly with their level of wealth and rate of growth. And in particular, among the four types, there was one called converging countries, represented by those countries that were capable to have a rate of growth more than the double of the average OECD rate of growth. This converging country, goes my colleague, how many are they in the 90s, I didn't know, I don't like this type of game, but he came and he said, well, look at this map, 13. Not surprisingly, there was China, you don't see, in honor of Macarena, there is Chile, there were a series of other countries around, 13. And then the German goes and says, but how many in the first 10 years of 2000? How many were capable more than double the rate of growth of the OECD? I didn't know. And the answer was this. I know that many of you interpret this as the dissemination of communism. It's not. Uh, <laughs> but I want to show it again because this is absolutely impressive. And I think that it doesn't need that much of explanation to justify why we came out with the expression shifting wealth. It was clear, so some years ago, that the center of gravity of the economy was moving. And if those that like this type of exercise located the center of the economy in the Asora Islands 40 years ago, and it's understandable because the strength of the economy was in North Atlantic, nowadays they are more or less around the eastern border of Turkey and still moving east, if you look from OECD countries, and in part south. Now, this phenomena had a series of relevant consequences, but still it was difficult to be conceptualized by my colleague, for example, in the economic department. He said, no, 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 that's not true. There is convergency, it's not a shift in wealth. In fact, what is the difference between catching gap and shifting wealth? What was happening? that we thought was more a structural change than a simple catching up. What was happening 
was that for sure the rate of growth were very different. Here you see what is happening in OECD member countries and then what is happening in uh, uh, other non-OECD countries. But uh, there was a structural important difference. In the past we have already faced the so-called new industrialized country, the dragons, that were capable to develop very quickly. But these countries were mainly small countries. I'm referring to China, Taipei, to Hong Kong, even to South Korea. We know that in these cases you have a very important opportunity of profit whilst wages don't grow. This is the traditional Kuzni idea. And as a consequence, these countries are capable to grow very fast as their competitiveness in terms of cost is remarkable. But after a while, the theory says, you reach full employment and wages start growing at the same rhythm than profits. And in this respect, you stop your comparative advantage and you just stabilize. This was the experience that took place with the so-called dragons. But what we were observing was radically different. We were confronted with countries whose size was so big that before reaching full employment, uh, many years had to pass. As a consequence, their comparative advantage was strongly maintained with a series of consequences that we may easily summarize by the fact that 1.5 billion blue-collar workers entered in the global labor market and in the trade areas in few years with relevant consequences, including in the traditional application of the theory of trade and interpretation of the development. But the second characteristic was represented by the fact that this country, differently from other of large size, such as Nigeria, for example, were countries with a certain technological capability, as such capable to compete on traditional production. There were traditionally done in OECD countries, at least uh, in uh, those that were developed with the first industrial revolution and in part the second countries. Now, at this point, if this is the major uh, phenomenon that is taking place, what could be the consequences that are taking place? I will concentrate for the sake of the debate only on few of those and then coming back maybe later on the rest. A first impact we see uh, very often, or we have seen in the last years on magazine and newspaper, is the appearance of the so-called new middle class. We are referring to the fact that a large part of the population of the globe has left extreme poverty and now is in a different area. They, in other terms, have increased the so-called uh, middle income sector uh, or, or middle sector of the income distribution. And these figures now represent a new demand on the global scene whose presence is modifying also the strategy of growth in many countries. Now, a series of countries are considering that developing internal demand is a relevant perspective despite many years of uh, a strong emphasis on export-led growth models. In fact, we know that Brazil, 
as pursued a strategy of this nature, at least in part, China has declared clear, clearly the intention to go in this specific direction. Our estimates suggest that by 2030, 80% of the so-called world's middle class will be living in developing countries. And this is a first relevant factor. A second factor is that we have new actors, or as they are called, new partners, on the global scene. Uh, they are affecting not only trade, but also the scenario for what concerns aid uh, policy and cooperation policy in general. In 2009, the first partner of Africa became China, passing the United States. There is a traditional communication mantra that says that the first partner of Africa is Europe. Obviously, if we take as a continent, but individually, the countries that are relating with uh, uh, Africa now come second after China. And this despite the fact that the general trade in Africa has doubled, and therefore it doesn't mean that the other partners have disappeared, that there is a zero-sum game. But still, it's remarkable to uh, notice that China is the first partner. And it's more than China. In reality, it's India, it's Brazil, is Turkey, is South Korea, just to mention countries that at the beginning of the 90s were not members of the DAC. So a large part of the relationship with an important continent, and I could say the same for Latin America and for Southeast Asia, is represented by the presence of new important actors on the uh, scene. I'm speaking about trade simply because data on trades are more easy to get. But the same appears when you observe data on foreign direct investments. The dimensions are smaller, but still there is a strong presence of new actors on the scene. A third important phenomenon is that now China is the main driver for what concerns manufacturing. China is already today the top world manufacturer. In 2010, China's shares of total world manufacturing value added was 19%, while the United States was 18.2%. And it's not, again, only China. China, Brazil, India, Russia Federation, Indonesia, appears between the first 20 manufacturers of the world. As such, the picture has changed, but it's not just a matter of numbers. It's also a matter of how to organize the process of production. We are now facing a global value chain where the same product is the result of different phases that are uh, produced in different countries. And now the problem is that how do you coordinate these different activities? The idea that the market itself is capable to regulate the inter-industrial relationship is over. And more and more countries, including China, are questioning themselves on how to manage the global value chain. In part because the global value chain is not necessarily providing a, a significant level of value added. We usually measure trade in a strange way. If a product passes twice a border, we consider it as being two different products. 
Now we have tried with a new exercise to calculate trade in terms of value added. In other terms, that famous product that passes twice is not considered twice. It, it's considered only the value added that is produced in uh, that passage. And what happens is that you see that in the global value chain, the countries that are getting the most of the value added are in reality OECD countries. The part of an iPad that's very famous that is produced in China is in reality very small. Therefore, developing countries are asking themselves how they can increase the part of value added that they can grasp. But that's not only the problem. The other problem is how to manage the relationship with their subcontractors. And if you read the speech of the Premier of China when he was nominated, you see a strong emphasis on improving the relationship with countries that are partner of China, or I would say Brazil, or other important emerging producers. In reality, there are several reasons behind it, one of which is what happened in the 60s in OECD countries. A large firms used to have subcontractors selected on the basis of the lower cost. So the firms were sending around a blueprint looking for those that were capable to be the cheapest in producing that product designed by the mother firms. But nowadays, no more that way. Mother firms ask for a cheap cost, but also a suggestion. Subcontractors have become intelligent. And that's why in the buying offices of large firms you see a lot of engineers, not only psychologists capable to trade carpets. And as a consequence now, also for these developing countries whose capacity to produce entails the contribution of many others, there is the issue on how to facilitate uh, incoming innovations from the partners. Here you see what happened in 95 in Southeast Asia, and mainly uh, there were several labs, but the most important were the United States and Japan. Ten years later, is China in reality that is at the center of the hub of the production. And these data are um, old. If we could have the most recent one, the picture would be even farther uh, clear. These are some of the implications of this shifting wealth that I have just described. But let's ask ourselves, okay, the center of gravity of the economy is moving, is not only catching up, but how much it is sustainable. How much this is dependent from the demand of developed countries that now being in certain cases in crisis could reduce its speed and therefore oblige emerging countries to reduce their capacity to grow. In other terms, how much this development is decoupled from the development of OECD countries. Putting the question in this way, the answer is there is no decoupling, obviously, because we are living in an economy which is very much integrated. But decoupling is not a matter of white and black. Decoupling is a matter of also of the grades in which there is or not decoupling. And we are convinced that there is a strong decoupling in reality or capacity. There are several centers of growth and now we are confronted with a multipolar growth. In part, what we observe in pre uh, at present in China, the reduction of the rate of growth 
is the result of decisions related to the internal situation, not necessarily only to the situation of Europe in terms of capacity to express demand for imports. Now, if there is, therefore, something more than the crisis in North Atlantic, what are the issues that these emerging countries are confronted with? Very often, the answer is provided by a sentence, that is, the middle-income trap. This country would be confronted with the fact that when you have development, you reach a certain step, and then you are blocked for several years in that step. Very few examples exist of countries that were capable to pass very quickly from uh, underdevelopment to middle-income level of development, and then develop. Korea is the example that is the most of the time quoted in this respect. What are the impediments, what are the obstacles, the binding constraints, if you want, that prevent this country to move further and pass the so-called middle-income trap? Generally speaking, we see two of those uh, problems. One are structural issues related to the economy and how uh, the economy can move from an extensive process of development to an intensive process of development. And the second one are social challenges that are more and more appearing in these developing countries and therefore require specific policy to be addressed. There is a third issue that I will not address here, and it was not addressed in our uh, document, that has to do with environment. The reason why it's not addressed here is uh, important to share. Mainly is due to the fact that some of the members of the Center uh, do not intend to discuss the issue of green growth because they consider that green growth is a limitation to what should be the real perspective of analysis. That should contain economic consideration, social consideration, and environmental consideration. Why? Focusing only on green and growth, leave aside the social dimension. This is, for example, the position of Brazil, several times expressed, so I am not sharing necessarily that point of view, but that's the reason why in this specific presentation I will not refer to green, even if I am obviously ready to answer some specific question in this respect. Let's start first with the first uh, point, which is uh, the structural dimension. Despite this growth, there are a series of problems that remain. It's very difficult to measure the capacity of an economy to improve its quality and its, and its innovation uh, capabilities. Very often we use indicator of uh, research and development investments. This indicator is extremely poor. For example, in the case of small and medium-sized firms, given the size, the firms cannot internalize a department of research and development does it mean that small and medium-sized firms do not innovate? Not at all. They do. But simply they do in a different way. Uh, in our uh, capacity uh, as economists, we are a little bit limited, and we tend to think that the black box of the firms 
works in the same way, doesn't matter what is the sector, what is the level of development of the country, or what is the type of specialization. There are a lot of differences, including for what concerns innovation. Nevertheless, um, at the global level, we have few indicators that are available, one of which is the indicator of research and development. Here you see the expenditure that countries do uh, as a whole, and then the contribution of the private sector. It's relatively easy to see that the distance between the developing emerging countries and the developed OECD countries is very wide. Why is so? In part because of assenteism of the private sector. In developing countries, the private sector do not invest on research and development and basic research, much less than the public sector in developing countries. So, in part, it's an issue related to um, uh, entrepreneurs. But there is also a second important issue that has to do with the specialization of countries, and in particular with the so-called curse of natural resource. Uh, we all know all the debate of Dutch disease was not uh, created in developing country. Actually, it happened first in the Netherlands, or was thematized first in Netherlands. And you know what is the story. A country that has natural resources tend to have uh, pressure on the rate of exchange so that in the sector that is competitive, employment will be well remunerated with high wages. In the sector of services, which is non-tradable, uh, also the wages will be affected by the demand of the engineers of the mining sector, but manufacturing in the middle will be exposed to very difficult competitive situation as the cost of their production will not be competitive with imports or will not be competitive if they intend to export. As such, society tends to polarize and to have in one end few workers that are well remunerated a large part of workers that are with low wages and manufacturing disappearing. So a tendency to further polarization. This tendency explains in part why there is little diversification in many of these economies and as such, if we want to address this diversification, policies tend to be required as the market mechanism themselves tend to uh, limit further the diversification. It's not obvious to say that, as a consequence, uh, the production of natural resources should be abandoned. If we observe the most developed countries, many have a large production of natural resources than within their borders. I'm not referring only to Australia, to Chile, or Norway. United States is a large producer of natural resources. The point is when you produce only natural resources, and therefore your diversification is extremely limited. Or the point is when you produce only one type of natural resources. There are experiences of countries that start producing one type of natural resources and then were capable to diversify. Macarena and Chile uh, witness here of the fact of a country that start producing copper and then use part of the rent that came in in the country to produce also uh, wine, uh, salmon, and to invest in forestry. So there are examples in which this is possible, but still, is not a generalized story. A second important uh, challenge comes from uh, human uh, resources and skills. 
In many of these countries, there is a mismatch between the existing skills and what would be required in case of further innovation. Let me open here a parenthesis. Every year in OECD, every two years, we conduce an analysis that is called PISA. We try to measure the capacity of 15 years old people, boys and girls, in understanding a test, uh, writing a test, and making calculations. Usually three countries were on the top of the list every year, changing positions, but on the podium there were always Finland, Singapore, and South Korea. Two years ago, for the first time, we measured some provinces in China, the most developed provinces, too, but still we are speaking about 300 million people. And measured for the first time, China came out the first in the list. So what I intend to say here are two things. First, uh, the uh, low level of skill is relative. It depends which country we are considering. And uh, second, very important point, very often there, is, there was a kind of leitmotiv that was to say if you want to develop, you need to be quicker in innovating than China in copying. In reality, now, this, the pressure to be capable to innovate is much higher because the condition of competitiveness have changed not only in terms of cost, but also in capacity to innovate. A third very well-known issue is the availability of credit, that in the case of small and medium-sized firms is dramatically limited. Because of specific failure of market, we know that equal credit is given more to large firms by banks than to small firms, because of reason of collaterals. And generally speaking, uh, what is lacking for the development of new sector and therefore of small firms in this new sector is a reform in this respect. But uh, last but not least, I would like also to stress a series of problems that are appearing in emerging countries that has to deal with infrastructure. The reason why infrastructure matters a lot is because the competitiveness of a firm does not depend only on what you do inside the black box. Uh, we know more and more, because of specialization, division of labor in the industrial sector, that the production uh, that we have on the market today is the result of several firms that are related together in a value chain. Not necessarily global, sometimes even local but the, product, the, the final product is the result of many actors. If one of these actors is bad, then the final product will be bad. It will happen exactly what happened in my house, as I am very ignorant in many things, but in particular in electronics, I bought a good amplifier and bad boxes, and the sound that I receive is given by the lowest quality component. The same happens in production. If you have a bad subcontractor, your product will be bad. But it's not only subcontractors. The same firms with the same machine and the same workers in um, Canberra or in, uh, let's say, uh, Rio de Janeiro will have different productivity. Because the firm is not an island in a market, in a sea of market sending signal of prices. A firm is part of a fabric. If the infrastructure where the firm is located, the logistical services are bad, the result is equally bad. In many developing countries, 
uh, the level of infrastructure is not only bad, but also the governance of infrastructure. We made a calculation uh, in uh, Colombia, the price that is negotiated to prepare an infrastructure by the government is multiplied three times at the end of the work, which is in itself an indicator on how bad the process is going. This is a series of factors that highlight why more and more in this emerging country we hear about industrial policy as a focus of the government. It is a mantra in the African Union discourse, uh, but it appears also in Latin America, and I, it appears in Southeast Asia as well. What are these industrial policies um, about? Uh, we do not think that what matters now is to discuss theoretically if there is a reason or not for industrial policy. What we think is relevant is just to start studying them and to see what these countries are doing. And we see that they are discussing about the governance mechanism. Should it be a policy done by the center? Should it be done by the regions? As in many cases, the competitiveness of firms depends from the places in which firms are located. What are the priorities? Should the state or the local authorities decide the sectors in which to invest or not? What should be the objectives? Is the diversification of the economy? Is a protection against uh, other countries that are more competitive? And in particular... Should this policy be policies or strategies? Should be they the result of the activity of a minister in charge of incentives? Or should they be the coordination between education policy, infrastructural policies, also industrial policy, altogether? All these questions are in the mind of different governments. What uh, we can draw from the existing experiences of Brazil, Argentina, South Africa, India, Indonesia, China. Probably it's very early to say, and we prefer not to be prescriptive in this phase, but just to be diagnostic. The only thing we can say is that there is a bunch of experiences in developed countries that could suggest not necessarily what to do, but at least what not to do. And they in the list of the not-to-do, there are a series of points that you see on these slides. I will not pass through all of them, but just few, and then, if you want, we can discuss later. First of all, what doesn't work is to provide indiscriminate subsidies to firms. First of all, because, in particular in the case of small firms, providing direct support doesn't mean that the entrepreneurs will know how to spend those... those. In order to avoid diplomatic mistakes, let me refer to Italy and what happened in the south of Italy. For many years, we have provided subsidies to small firms, and in reality, the entrepreneurs did what they could do. They bought the same machine they already had. Now, if you have economy of scale, this provides increasing productivity. If you don't, as it is the case in many light industries then it doesn't provide any increase in productivity and competitiveness. So there is no modernization. On, uh, moreover, it provides a certain attitude of assistance that is not the most helpful when it comes to innovation and entrepreneurship. The second thing that didn't work was the idea of never-ending support, in other terms, measure without sunset close. 
Again, because this established in the mind of the entrepreneurs the fact that they receive money because handicapped, and not just as temporary measure to provide a boost and then letting the firms compete among each other. A third measure that didn't work was large public investment, so-called cathedral in the desert, that decided from the center, didn't take into account the specific condition of the region in which the investment were located, of the sector in which the investment were made. In reality, the process of decision of the state sometimes is inevitable, but what matters is how the process of decision is done and how much the different actors are involved in the decision. I can continue further on this point, you have seen them, but let me now move quickly and conclude on a second crucial important area of policy making that we see appearing. One, as I said, is related to production, but we cannot disentangle it from another area that has to do with social issues. And let me call back my German colleague that came a second time in my office one year later, and he said, Mario, there is a country in the north of Africa, a middle-income country, that for 10 years had 5% of growth every year. A country that had a public deficit of 3% every year. In other terms, the Maastricht criteria. A country that had a debt of 42.8, let's say 44, uh, 43, uh, of GDP. A country that had a total enrollment in primary school and very good enrollment in uh, uh, secondary school. Which country is it? Again, I didn't like this type of game. And, <laughs> but said, okay, tell me. And he said, it's Tunisia. It's Tunisia before the Arab Spring. In other terms, a country that with the glasses of an economist, particularly living in Europe and thinking to the uh, Maastricht criteria, would be perfect. No other European country was capable to have the same performances, including Germany or France. But this country was confronted with an upheaval. I would call it a conservative revolution, a revolution. So, can we uh, deduct that uh, growth is sufficient, that the traditional criteria that we have are sufficient to explain uh, well-being in people? Obviously not. The example is here to witness exactly the contrary. We can go further. We did a small exercise. We took the rate of growth, the uh, expenditure in education, and an indicator, subjective indicator of life satisfaction, and put them together. And we saw uh, what happened in China. There is a good correlation between uh, these three factors. A little bit less in India, but then in Brazil, uh, in Costa Rica, they are aligned. There are two countries in which this is not the case, clearly. One is Tunisia, and the other is uh, Thailand. I am persuaded that if we would do again the exercise today, Brazil would appear in a different way. I am persuaded that uh, Chile, probably with the student manifestation, would appear in a different way, and so on. In other, in other uh, words, what is happening here? Let's go back to the middle classes that we introduced in our discourse before. Uh, I remember that there was a visit of Mr. Khrushchev to the United States where Ms., uh, Mr. Nixon showed to him 
a representation, physical representation of a middle uh, class uh, house. And in this uh, house there were two fridge, there were two cars, there were two children, there were two parents, and there were two dogs. <laughs> now, uh, Khrushchev answered that this was fake. There was an illusion created by capitalism in order to demonstrate that they were stronger. But probably the family, the U.S. family was living in that way. When we say middle classes for the emerging country, are we speaking about the same type of people? Obviously not. In 60% of the cases, these so-called middle classes don't have a car. In 70% of the cases, they work in the informal economy. As such, they don't have a pension. When they retire, they fall back in extreme poverty because they don't have a pension. If there is somebody sick in the family, people go back in the extreme uh, poverty. If there is a divorce, go back in extreme poverty. If there is a crisis in the local region, not necessarily in the country or in the globe, they fall back in extreme poverty. In other terms, we are speaking of figures that are vulnerable. We tend to disagree with the analysis of Fukuyama in these days that lately uh, observed the phenomenon of middle classes exactly for this point. Middle classes in themselves are not necessarily the um, militant of democracy, economic freedom, and so on. Middle classes are strange type of social figure. But for sure, in many countries in these days, they are showing this turbulence that is coming from a frustration. In one hand, you live extreme poverty, you have expectation for you and your family, and on the other hand, the society is not providing an answer. Tunisia was very clear in this respect. The rate of fertility 40 years ago was seven children per woman. Today is 2.1, less than in France. In other terms, the children became, from being the pension of the uh, old parents, in being the aspiration of the family. And when they go to university or high school and they get out and don't find a job, but in the informal economy, obviously there is a strong tension and an explosion. Which means that if you want to address these issues seriously, social cohesion policy needs to be taken into account and social protection system needs to be put in place. They are not conditional cash transfer. As conditional cash transfer are indispensable, very helpful, good as they are, both familia, opportunidades, and other, in reality are a way to get out temporarily from extreme poverty. They are not sustainable solution. And therefore, the next step is to think about social protection system. Now, uh, what is happening in developing countries for what concerns the capacity to build industrial policy and the capacity to build social protection system. I think that a lot is in this graph and in the following one, and then I will conclude. The fiscal revenue as a percentage of GDP in developing countries is extraordinarily low. Obviously, it was improved uh, because of the growth that we have measured with shifting wealth, some additional fiscal space has been created, but still, why is the average fiscal revenue in OECD countries 35% of the GDP? We are speaking of a fiscal revenue that in case of Mexico is 11.3%, if we do not count 
the contribution from oil. We are speaking of Colombia with 14%. We are speaking of many other countries with very weak fiscal capacities. Now, fiscal capacity has an immediate consequence that is shown by this graph. Here you see the Gini indicator before and after taxes and the use of taxes in OECD countries. And this graph is very interesting because it is concentrated on Latin America. I didn't want to speak about Asia because you know everything about Asia. So I'm speaking about Latin America. And here, what do you observe? You observe that before and after taxes, the difference in Gini in OECD country is significant, but before taxes, the level of inequality is comparable with Latin America. So all these stories that Cristoforo Colombo, the ancient tradition, the Aztec that used to kill the other and so on, uh, these cultural references are weak in explaining things. A lot is related to policy and the capacity to do policy. Now, what it, this graph tells you is that in many cases, the capacity in Latin America is absolutely weak. Because inequality before and after taxes don't vary practically. Therefore, a major issue here, one of the first, is how to do good social policies. But another one is how to finance the capacity of the government to intervene in the economy in order to guarantee both policy addressing the structural dimension of the economy as well as policy addressing the social cohesion in these uh, economies. The fact that these issues are crucial is also shown in important countries such as China by the increasing labor disputes or the increasing level of conflict. I don't need to speak only about China because in Brazil the last phenomena just shown how strong is the tension that is appearing as a result of success in emerging countries. I emphasize as a result of success because I would not like to give the impression that uh, I put together the turbulences in, under the social perspective in OECD countries that are mainly due to completely different reasons to what is happening in developing countries. And we see also the political different configuration that they are taking. In OECD countries, they very often anticipate potential aggregation of middle classes around totalitarian extreme right uh, proposal, whilst in developing countries the future is much more differentiated. Sorry for being longer than I planned, but being Italian I anticipated that this was the risk. So <laughs> the only message I wanted to give to you is represented by a joke of a very important economist that died unfortunately two years ago, Albert Hirschman. And Hirschman uh, emphasized our incapacity to perceive the change. And so, uh, in order to demonstrate it, he used the following joke. There are two people meeting each other, and one says to the other, Paul, what's happening to you? It has been ten years that we didn't see each other. You were small, now you are tall. You were fat, now you are thin. And the other goes, sorry, but my name is not Paul. So you have changed so much, even the name. <laughs> Thank you. Omar, thank you very much. It was a real tour de force. Uh, we do have a little bit of time for questions. So if anyone would like to. Yeah, please. Um, we're going to use a microphone. Oh, thank you. Uh, in order to avoid the middle income trap, 
you are saying that you have to modify the tax system. But then how do you modify the tax system without affecting the investment in the country? Uh, do you feel that there is a strong relationship between investment and social system? Let's take the OECD countries. At present, the countries that have the best social system are those that are growing the most. In fact, this is the case of all the North European countries. It, uh, Roderick made a, a, an analysis some time ago about the relationship between GDP per capita and level of taxes. And he showed that there is a very strong correlation. The richer uh, a country, the higher the level of taxes. With three exceptions, Australia, Japan, and the United States, relevant as they are, but they can explain also for the little exposition of these countries to trade. So I don't think that this connection is necessarily in place. The problem with a developing country is that the elite always avoid and limit the increase of taxes in the country in order to address social uh, benefits. You're right, that there are several uh, exceptions to this rule. First of all, I think that the international community should play a role, exactly because it's much more difficult for political economy reason to apply this measure within the country. So it's important that we say it first. Second, something is changing. I mentioned Mexico. Mexico is a country which is a very strong example, 11.3, and member of the OECD, among other things. But Pina Nieto, the new president, can not only announce has already made a series of modifications in the country. Unfortunately, very often, the, uh, the change need to pass by open, not necessarily, through value-added taxes. And obviously they are not the most progressive measures, and here explains some of the resistance. But still, there is something moving. We are doing what we can, also creating a forum on taxes, but we try to reduce also the impact of the illegal movement of capital. Okay, back. Okay. Thank you. You were telling about the large public investment, are you indicating this one that is not for fully privatization, but reform of the public sector, and that is the, at the bottom-up level, the community development, integrating the two different stakeholders and cluster-based area approaches of different regions? I think that you are, yes, I agree with you. In other terms, I think that we have to discuss a lot, not necessarily what, but how. And uh, in many cases, the policy of privatization in the past were the occasion to create very strong private monopolies. And so they didn't help that much. On the other hand, it's true that, at least speaking about my country and avoiding diplomatic mistakes, the centralization of decision of large investment without involving the actor, that a local place know much better what are the opportunities for investment of, of development, but on the other hand, don't know what is happening on the international economy, needs to be taken by a coalition of different actors. So the issue becomes, how do we build this group and this discussion in order to identify uh, the investment. In a certain sense, is to rediscuss planning and how planning is to be made. Sorry, we'll just have to pursue the statement. What's wrong with the statement? The statement is local authorities. One more question on this side, and then I'm going to give this uh, side a chance. Thank you, Mario, for a social uh, brilliant presentation. Um, I'm just wondering, uh, many developing countries, as you uh, hinted, many developing countries, uh, at least outside of the BRICS and uh, within the African Union uh, community, find it very difficult to diversify 
beyond the extractive industry. Is there, I'm just thinking, is there a case here for the infant industry theory that those countries need some form of interventionist policy from the state, either through uh, provision of subsidies to develop capacities of, of, uh, to, to, to diversify or through some protectionist uh, theory? Can you comment, please? Well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't speak about protectionist theory or not because it seems very ideological point. Yes, that, definitely, in certain cases for infant industries, there is a reason to intervene, and countries are intervening. Actually, this was what OECD countries put in place at the beginning of certain periods of uh, industrialization, including Korea, for example. Yeah, so definitely, in certain cases, yes. But I would not generalize. Can I go? Oh, you want to ask a question? Yeah. I thought you were offering this a question. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, relatively recently, the OECD released the Better Life Initiative, um, which basically says that um, we should look at more things than just economic growth, but take into account health, education, safety, etc. How is that initiative, or the results of that initiative, being used in development? A lot. Uh, we have now started a new exercise, I was commenting on the letter before, that is called multidimensional country reviews. The idea is very simple. We think that development is multidimensional and cannot be reduced only to growth. But secondly, that the binding constraints to development do not come only from economic factors. As such, we are trying to use the, uh, the well-being indicators as a first sketch, uh, a first uh, diagnosing on the countries, and then we have obviously to enter with uh, qualitative analysis. Now, what is the problem with this type of uh, multiple indicators? When they become normative. Because if you take, as it is the case in the OECD, 14 variables, each one with its own indicators, and then you say to a country which is developing, you need to be at the level of standards of the average in the world in all these fields. You are just producing frustration. Because a policymaker that is confronted with the fact that needs to be the best in education, in health, and everything at the same time, will say, why should I develop? I mean, if I need all these things, why should I need development? In reality, we need to distinguish what is a real prerequisite that can produce another factor from what is a present picture. Yes, in your concluding um, remarks, you talk about the linkage between industrial policy and social cash transfer as in the case of Latin America. And there were some challenges you listed concerning weak fiscal capacity, capacity for policy making and financing issues and so forth. So if you talk about capacity for policy making, what do you really mean? Institutional capacity, um, human capacity, or yeah, just now, I, I said, first, there is a financial capacity. Either we consider fiscal reform or it will be impossible to do anything. I mean, 11% uh, or 12% of 40, let's say, below 50%, as a rough uh, criteria, what you can do in terms of uh, action of the state is just ensuring the basic activities. I mean, the custom, the security, and even some difficulties for the internal security maybe justice and so on. So you need to increase this capacity. If you want to do public policy, that's simple as it is. 
And public policy is not only regulation, therefore you need to have capacity to, to make expansion and so on. But you're right, obviously. I don't want to say that the only thing you need is money when we know that there is a problem of fiscal legitimacy. Either the government are able to demonstrate that they spend in a good way, or there will be fiscal illegitimacy, and you can do the reform that you want, but people simply will not pay. But we have seen from some analysis, asking the so-called new middle class, uh, and there was a strong availability to pay taxes in case in which the services that they would receive would be of good quality. So the emphasis now should be on the financing and on the quality of service. Okay, I think one more question. Hi. Uh, on one of your slides, I saw that uh, Russia, during the Putin time, actually increased its manufacturing. And uh, in terms of uh, your expertise, uh, how would you assess it? And uh, how could, uh, for example, countries like Russia, uh, Kazakhstan, which depend on natural resource extraction, uh, how could they diversify their economy? I would not answer directly on Russia. It's easy for me because Russia is not a member of the <laughs> So we don't have direct uh, and link. Uh, no, but generally speaking, I think we are uh, addressing the same general issue. This level of generalization, they are similar. In other terms, uh, if the dependence on natural resources, in particular of energy, that as you've seen in the last magazine uh, uh, issued by the economist, that there is a provision that there will be a reduction of the price of energy resources, in particular due to a change in demand and not in supply and so on. As a consequence, I think that they are confronted in a serious way with that serious uh, perspective and therefore they need to diversify the economy very highly. Now, the point is up to do. Alright, well we are out of time, so we'll have to leave it there. Um, that was a fascinating presentation, not only covering industrial policy, but going on to uh, you have been listening to a podcast from the development policy center for more information on our work, visit our website at devpolicy.anu.edu.au. To join the conversation on Australian aid, Papua New Guinea and the Pacific, and global development policy, visit our blog at devpolicy.org. At the blog, you can also sign up to our newsletter for all the latest updates or connect with us on social media. Thanks for listening.